Morning, everyone. It's good to be together again. Um, it's uh, been great to hear from everybody during the week through WhatsApp and through uh, Facebook, etc. And it's good, just good to make connections, particularly at times like this. Today is Passion Sunday. Um, that's in the traditional church calendar. And that, what that means is we start the run-up towards Easter itself from this point forward. And traditionally on, Easter Sunday, on Passion Sunday, uh, the song that was sung was My Song is Love Unknown. That was written by a Puritan back in the 16th century, but they had a new, or 17th century, and had a new tune put to it in 1925. So I just want to read the words of My Song is Love Unknown as we come to communion. My song is love unknown, my saviour's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow, but men made strange and none the longed for Christ would know. But oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, Hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. They rise and needs will have, my dear Lord made away, a murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes, that he his foes from thence might free. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Let's come now to break the bread. And the bread symbolises that though we are distributed, though we're in different places, we remain one body. We are the body of Christ because our Saviour laid down his life for us. So we break the bread in the name of Jesus, just as he broke it on that day 2,000 years ago. Body of Christ broken for you. In the same way, we take the cup. This cup is the new covenant in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of him. For this covenant is sealed by his blood. Hallelujah. (coughs) And may all that was purchased through his blood and by his cross and by his resurrection be our be the grace that gets us through, that sustains us, that strengthens us, and that brings us rejoicing into his presence each time we come. Let's turn now to the word. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we're reading verses 10 to 25. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you'd been baptised in my name. Now I did baptise the household of Stephanus. Behold that, I do not know whether I baptised any other. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, uh, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So having completed his introductions, Paul wastes no time in addressing the issues of the Corinthian church and the concerns that he has regarding their behaviour. He makes it clear that unity rather than division is paramount. This is a theme that he returns to throughout the letter in different ways, culminating, of course, in his wonderful passage concerning the body in chapter 12 and how we're all one with one another and all have a a contribution to make to the body. So he begins with this issue of division in verse uh, uh, 10, 10 to 16. But what was the nature of their division? Well, this goes back into the culture of the time. Corinth was a very proud city. It had been established as a Roman colony on Greek soil by no other than Caesar himself, Julius Caesar, in 44 BC, having previously been destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC. Thus it was built with a Roman style and with Roman pride and with Roman culture. And this included lauding certain philosophical teachers such that their followers fell out with one another and even scrapped with one another um, and we can see some of that with these new believers who have been had imported this attitude into the church they were fighting over whether paul or apollos or peter or even jesus was the best teacher going back over the history of of this church of course, it had been established by Paul, who had spent eight, 18 months there building and laying a foundation through his teaching. According to Acts 18.11, after he left, Apollos went there for a while. Of course, Apollos had originally come from Alexandria, a centre of learning. And after it had his theology sorted out by Priscilla and Aquila, he'd been preaching powerfully, first in Ephesus and then in Corinth and the region around there. It seems from 1 Corinthians 12... 
that some had who, had also arrived in Corinth who had faith, come to faith under Peter's ministry as well. So, in addition, there were those who believed that they were not following anyone's teaching, but only that of Jesus Christ himself. And it's almost as if they were treating the various teachers in the, in the same way as they treated the various philosophers before they came to faith. Each one was affirming a different teacher and saying, he's better, he's better, all to the exclusion of the others. And Paul is robust in his dealing with this in verse 13. He centres it back on Jesus and on the cross. Who they were taught by, how they came to faith, was not the most important fit thing. Rather that they came to faith because of all that Jesus had done for them on the cross. In the same way, who baptised them is of no consequence, but rather the fact that they are baptised. Do we see these arguments today? Yes, of course we do. We hear people say, well, I like this preacher, or I like that preacher, or I don't like this other preacher. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be discerning about who we listen to, we listen to of course we should there's a lot of rubbish out there and a lot of false teaching but but no teacher or preacher who has access to has none of them have access to all the truth and we need to continue to weigh up all that we hear from whichever source we hear it sometimes when somebody else has preached in 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 our church people have said oh wasn't that wonderful i'm thinking well what you know what about me last week or the week before um but that's not the issue The issue is that whoever's preaching, whoever's word we're receiving, providing they're preaching the truth, as long as it builds up the body of Christ, that's all that matters. Because ultimately, we don't follow men or women, we follow Christ. (coughs) And we need to be rooted in him and on the work of the cross. We also need to deal with any wrong attitudes in ourselves, in our hearts towards anyone else in the body, whether that be local or global, who is seeking to proclaim the truth, but might just not connect with us in the way that we like it. The body of Christ is divided enough without us adding to it. And we also mustn't be so arrogant in this respect, thinking we've got the whole truth. We can always learn from others, even if they're not the same flavour as us. This is something I've learned in my work in CTE. I can learn to worship in new ways when I consider orthodox spirituality. I can learn to contemplate scripture and prayer more deeply as I study the monastic movements of the past. I can learn the missional imperative by learning or reading of the Moravians or the Wesleyans. God has worked in many ways through all different people over the last 2,000 years and we can all draw upon the insights of these people and uh, apply them in our own setting to enhance our understanding of the truth, our worship of God and our proclamation of the gospel. So then Paul turns to the wisdom of the wise in verses 17 to 25. This discussion regarding factions leads Paul to the next area of concern We've already mentioned the attitudes to different philosophers of the time. Now Paul considers the wisdom that such philosophers bring compared to the gospel. It begins in verse 17 with his words, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, but so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Or would, uh, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. In other words, Paul is saying that if belief in the gospel is only a matter of responding to the clever rhetoric of philosophers, then the, when the next clever philosopher comes along, we may be persuaded to believe them instead. And so the cross becomes void in our understanding. 
Our belief in Jesus is not dependent on words, on philosophy, on rhetoric, or even on reason alone. All of these things might play a factor in rationalising our faith. However, our belief in Jesus is based on something much deeper than that, as Paul will go on to explain in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. If the cross had no power, we would just be following another human philosophy. But Paul's contention is that the cross does have power. It has the power to bring forgiveness. It has the power to bring freedom. It has the power to deliver us from evil. It has the power over death. It has power to change the world. Jesus was not just one more ancient philosopher going around teaching some nice things. He was God in human form, whose mission was to rescue the world and bring it back into the divine intention. The power of the cross is in the fact that Satan is defeated and Christ is victorious. It's in the fact that the enemy tried to do his worst and snuff out the Son of God, but that Jesus made a public spectacle of him. In other words, he exposed him for all that he was and so that we could come out from under Satan's dominion and under the kingdom reign of God. The cross has the power to change lives and to change the world. It's not based on empty rhetoric, but on the fact that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself to jump forward into 2 Corinthians 5.19 for a moment. And this is Paul's starting point as he compares the wisdom of this world to the power of the cross. In the verses that follow, Paul goes on to contrast God's wisdom with human wisdom, concluding in verse 25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is he saying here? Well, building on verse 22, he's declaring that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those, i.e. the Greeks, who seek wisdom and is a stumbling block to those, i.e. the Jews, who look for signs. So what in, what way, in, in what way is the cross foolishness or a stumbling block? Let's take, let's take these two Greek groups in turn. The Greeks, as we've already said, were always seeking out the latest philosopher or the latest philosophical thought. They wanted not some new piece of wisdom that would help them live better in this life or else prepare them better for the afterlife. And we see this in Paul's visit to Athens in Acts 17, where we're told that many used to gather each day to hear the latest nugget of teaching. In that message in Acts 17, we see all those gathered listening attentively to Paul until he mentions resurrection. This notion clashes with their idea of spirit and flesh and the afterlife, and many walked away at this point. The idea, you see, of a physical resurrection was foolishness to Greeks. Why would anyone want to come back and live in a mortal, material body when their spirit could be off in the ethereal world somewhere, no longer having physical constraints? The Jews, on the other hand, were looking for signs of the coming Messiah. Their expectation was that he would come and rescue the nation from Roman pagan domination and set up his kingdom from Jerusalem. He would overcome the forces of darkness and bring national deliverance to the nation, dealing with all of their enemies. What they were looking for was not a crucified Messiah. So when Jesus appeared and instead of leading up an uprising, became the victim of Roman justice and was crucified on the city rubbish dump, it made absolutely no sense to them. How could the the Messiah end up dead? How could this signify the powers uh, of darkness being defeated? What did this have to do with national deliverance? For both of these groups, the cross made no sense. 
And Paul puts it like this. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. However, he goes on in verse 24 to declare, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. My experience of presenting the gospel to people in our own day is just the same. People don't get it because it doesn't fit in with their worldview. How could events that took place 2,000 years ago in the wrong end of the Roman Empire, which culminated in a teacher-stroke miracle worker being brutally executed by the Romans, make any difference to our daily lives today? How could such events affect the destiny of the world? How could the death of one man make a difference to what happens to me beyond the grave? Looked at in terms of human wisdom, the cross makes no sense at all. But when the Holy Spirit comes and brings illumination into the heart of the listener, suddenly understanding comes and the gospel makes sense. It wasn't just a man who died, it was the Son of God. It wasn't Roman justice that put him there on the cross, it was his own choice. It wasn't the pointless death of a wisdom teacher, but a substitutionary death on behalf of all that brings forgiveness and new life. It wasn't an end but was a beginning as he triumphed over death in the resurrection. It wasn't the end of a Jewish revolutionary movement, but the commencement of the church, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people belonging to God, called out of darkness to proclaim God's excellencies. It wasn't the defeat of good by evil, but was rather the means by which evil was defeated for all time. The cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It seems like foolishness to people, that God's foolishness is wiser than the wisest person. It may seem like weakness to us, but as C.S. Lewis suggests in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the deeper magic from before the dawn of time that overcame all the power of the enemy was at work. God's wisdom is still greater than human wisdom. The likes of Richard Dawkins may think they know best, but God's wisdom will prevail. I love the piece of graffiti I once heard about. Someone had written on the wall, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Underneath, someone else had written, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. Humanity in its arrogance can make proud boasts about how God is irrelevant in this world, but God's wisdom will ultimately prevail. He will have the last laugh. For us, in our day, we can be confident in the message of the gospel. Some may laugh and pour scorn over us. Some may ignore us. Some may even get angry with us. But we can be assured in the knowledge that we stand in God's salvation. That we have hope for the future because our God is on our side. And no matter what happens, we are safe and secure in the love of God. In these times of uncertainty, human wisdom can only take us so far. Governments can put place in place measures to help stem the tide, but ultimately they are powerless. Our only hope in times such as these is in our Lord God. And I would encourage you to let that truth prevail over all that would seek to overwhelm you this week. Let the knowledge of his love fill your heart. Let the peace of God rule in your spirit as you face each day under his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that your wisdom has prevailed over all. We thank you that you are more powerful than all the works of the enemy and you defeated them on the cross. 
and we give you praise. And we pray that, Lord, that that truth might permeate our beings and might cause us, Lord God, to stand and to rise and, Lord God, to overcome in all that we encounter this week. May your blessing rest on us as a community and as, Lord God, the people of God in this place. And may, Lord God, our testimony be powerful in this world during this time. For the sake of your kingdom and your glory. Amen.